everyone. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Board Game Gambit Podcast. Oldies but goodies. Today we're talking about the games that have been on your shelf for such a long time, but you wouldn't have it any other way. And joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm good. We are all in New Year, which makes us all a little older, but I guess the alternative is worse, so we'll Ooh. take it. <laughs> yes, for sure. No, I actually have none of the gloom that seems to be popular in recent years about New Year's. I'm one of those old-fashioned fools that, that sees New Year as, oh, that's great, let's start a new one. It it. It cannot be worse than the one before, and and life keeps going on, which is very good. Um, I also got to play a lot over the winter break, so I'm I'm happy. That's good. I'm looking forward to hearing what you got to play because I will be enjoying your plays vicariously through you, as I have not played anything since our last <laughs> podcast. Uh, it has been very busy at work, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you've been playing. Okay, so um, we paused both because we we went um, away from Ireland. We are currently in Italy and flying back in two days, um, but also because we finished a campaign. We paused our um, Arkham Horror LCG obsession for a little bit. We played okay. a lot of that. We got defeated at the end of the campaign. It was still very satisfying. Um, the the loss didn't feel random. It felt like, I'm, I mean, not that we made any major mistake, but there were a lot of little mistakes in the final in the final scenario. So that that was satisfying. So we played a lot of different little things. I think the the one that man, merits the biggest mention is. Mosaic, a story of uh, civilization. Oh, really? Which is um, is a big, um, quite sprawling civ game with all of the trapping of the genres. You can uh, fight for majorities with military units, although you cannot destroy other people's stuff. But you can build cities. You can expand trade towns to have more trade goods. You can buy tax that don't really allow you to do many different things. They're more kind of set collection tax. And then you can grow your population, which is a resource and a couple of other minor things. Um, I had seen it at, I think at Pax and Essen. I wasn't uh, particularly impressed because it's not my style of game. Mm -hmm. Um, My newfound friend, Mike, uh, was uh, nice enough to organize a, a gaming day in which, among other things, Anne and I got to play this. And I think no one at the table, including the people who were very excited about it, um, was particularly keen on it. Um, it felt like a long game of doing a lot of choices that were not particularly interesting. Like, they the they took away the spatial component because you can build cities wherever you want. You don't need to go adjacent. You don't need to build trade routes or anything like that, which is liberating for someone like me who is not great at um, spatial reasoning, but sure. also takes away the connection to the map and uh, the geography. And uh, the text 
the technologies for the most part don't let you do anything it's oh i now have two golden symbols so i can buy this other technology and when i have six golden symbols i get a little bonus and if i get six food symbols i get a little bonus but it's not really um a tech building a la beyond the sun or even a twilight imperium anything like that so we came away wanting to play something different with the map um which is not a great great uh sense and that seemed to be the consensus of the six very different players at the table so that was not great um i caught up on uh century spice road we uh, you, have, you have played it right of course um, it's by my, my dear friend, Emerson Matsuchi. Um, I see him only at conventions, but he's a really nice guy. And I had never played that. His, uh, his game, Spectre Ops, is one of my favorites. And this one I had never tried. I must say I wasn't particularly thrilled. Um, sure. Uh, what, what it's an okay. Think, what do you think of Century Spice Road? I think it's okay. I mean, I do own it. I It was when it first came out, Everyone was all hyped about it and saying that it was um, gonna replace Splendor and all these things. That like it was the new, you know, sort of intro engine building kind of thing. And I think I still prefer Splendor. I think that it is better for for me at least. Um, I feel like. Um, for people who aren't as familiar with board games and computing, like, resource trading, I feel like it gets kind of muddy versus the straightforwardness of Splendor. Yeah, I must say the one thing that I, I want to say in favor of, of Century Spice Road is that for the first time, or almost the first time, I understand that expression of, I recognize that it's a well-designed game. I see that it took something that is common to a lot of resource transformation, engine building games, and made it simple and accessible. Mm -hmm. But to me, that does absolutely nothing. I want something to do with my engine building and resource transformation, not just sure. more resource transformation. but. Um, but the one game that we played a lot of during this this break, it was actually a gift that I got for Anna. I couldn't mention it in the in the last episode simply because I couldn't risk spoiling the surprise. So when we were <laughs> finishing Essen on the very last day of the convention, we stopped and for an hour we looked, uh, we watched people playing this game and then immediately got into a game of it ourselves. So we spent two hours of the convention around this game, which for us is super rare because we tend to move quickly from, from thing to thing. Um, and this is an, a social deduction game called Feed the Kraken. So Feed the Kraken, which came out, I think, one or two, well, it's last year, it's a 2022 release. Um, is by Michael Cheney and Hans Joachim Ho, Dr. Hans Joachim Ho, and Tobas, Tobias Himmick uh, for Fun Tales. And it's a social deduction game plus, I would call it. Um, it's 
it borrows heavily from secret Hitler for the, the social deduction round. Every round there are three players, two players each see two cards, choose one of them and give those two cards total to the third player who makes a choice between those two. So the responsibilities are a little more split than in other social deduction games. Okay. Um, but there are two things that make it uh, very, very interesting to me. Uh, although I do like Secret Hitler quite a bit. It's not my favorite of uh, the social deduction games, but I do like it quite a bit. Um, this has two things. First, there are three teams in the game. Uh, the team is Piratesque, and there, there are good sailors, pirate sailors, and followers of the Kraken cult, a Cthulhu <laughs> kind of inspired thing. Okay. Um, and second, the game that is built on makes quite a bit of sense thematically. In Secret Hitler, you are accumulating legislations, and there are these very generically uh, liberal or fascist um, legislations, and when you hit a certain number, something happens. Here you're moving on a map, um, so you are steering the ship on which you all are through the, through the, through the board, and when you want to change captain, you have to mutiny with spending some of your weapons, so there is a little bit more thematic underpinning. There is a clear progression. You can see the, the, the ship moving on the map towards the different destinations. So you know not only how far you are, but how left-shifted or right-shifted, which are the good and bad directions uh, you are, or how close you are to the crack in space. And that's the third um, thing that I like about this a lot, the introduction of this third team, which at the beginning of the game is in extreme minority there is in most player counts there is only one cult leader and then through the game basically there are the three directions that correspond to the three different themes and every time the the yellow middle road is taken which is the cult but is also the least negative of the not yours for everyone else the leader has the possibility to expand it his influence, there are some cards of which often they mean another person gets recruited secretly into the into the cult. So the, the balance of power is shifting. And so if you lean on to, well, this is not too bad, too much, all of a sudden it becomes too bad. Um, and there are a couple of twists. For example, there are spaces on the board where players get thrown overboard, eliminated, and it's very close to the end of the game. It's on the second to last row of movement. And if you throw the leader of the cult overboard, you give them the game. They want to be sacrificed to the Kraken, which <laughs> means that the only way to be sure you're not doing that is to sacrifice someone who you absolutely trust, either by how they played or if you saw them, if you are a pirate. So there is this tension that you want to throw uh, away from the game someone that is most likely your ally. And if you know for sure, that's even better, um, which is a very interesting tension. Obviously, the ideal would be to sacrifice someone of the other team, good and bad, and avoid touching the cult. So there is, and it's, it's quick, 
well, relatively quick. It's not 20 minutes quick. It's not uh, Avalon or Secret Hitler, but it's definitely not in Shadows Over Camelot or even worse, um, Battlestar Galactica time. Um, sure. With both five, six, and eight players, it always came under an hour. It's okay. easy to teach, um, even for people who are not too much into modern board games. I highly, highly recommend it. And uh, the nice thing was we saw it in Essen. It comes with a normal version, which is nice. It has a nice map, nice pieces. And then with the deluxe version that has little minis for the Kraken and um, a steering wheel to mark who the the navigator is. And so the, the, the Christmas surprise was that I managed to get the deluxe version, send it to Italy, ship it to Italy. So when we came here the day after Christmas and I opened it and then we proceeded to play it through through the break with our friends. So that has been definitely the highlight of my gaming vacation. That sounds like a really fun game. Yeah, um, there were a couple of people who didn't want to play it because they normally don't like uh, social deduction game. Um, so far, it has been a hit with both of them. I think the two things that it addresses is either people are scared of social deduction game because they have been traumatized by Battlestar, which I really like, but I can see how that, oh, I spent three of the five of the four hours of the game in the break, something like that. This moves very quickly. So even if you happen to be eliminated, that cannot be more than one round before the end of the game, or sure. maybe two when you're playing with a lot of players. So it's, it's, the mechanism is built so that that consequence will be short. And the other thing is people who vice versa find that Avalon or Secret Hitler have this interesting mechanism, but you're not really playing the game, which I disagree with, but I have heard that criticism a lot. This mm-hmm. gives you something to do. Uh, there are actions, there are special revealed powers, and this constant opportunity to change the captain as long as you still have gunpowder, basically. Uh, makes it so that you can be always involved. I really liked it. Also, I uh, unfortunately have lied in our first podcast of the new year. I have played a game since our last recording. Uh, It was not recorded in my plays because it's a more commercial game. Okay. But I did play, manage to play a game. What is and, it? Uh, it's Wits and Wagers. Oh, I like Wits and Wagers. It's a nice yeah. party game. Yeah. So we played that um, at Christmas with a bunch of people. So for people who don't know Wits and Wagers, uh, I think it's Wits and Wagers Party Edition. It was specifically. But it was. it's a game where you ask a question and the answer is always numerical. So it could be, you know, what year was spam invented or when, um, what percent of people, uh, I don't know, eat white chocolate or prefer white chocolate. I don't know, but I just made that one up. But so it's a game where you're getting a numerical answer. Everyone writes down their answer and then they place them, uh, from lowest to highest and you're betting on the answer uh, with like the prices right rules where it's the closest without going over the the real answer. And there's always a one if you think it's below the lowest answer that anyone put. So, um, and you have two chips to bid on. Uh, it plays really quick. 
it's a lot of fun because people they're they're common questions that people not should know the answer to but they're they're relatively quick like you know around the time that spam was invented or you know around the time that the first toilet paper air uh toilet paper ad aired on tv but you don't know exactly because people usually don't know those exact dates unless you're a jeopardy master so uh it's a lot of fun and we played it with a bunch of people who are not board game people and we had fun with it i haven't played it in years years and years and years probably since before i moved to the east coast which is now almost eight years so it's a lot of fun i like it I remember playing it, and I think it avoids a couple of things that uh, other trivia or information-based games uh, fall into. One is the making you feel stupid trap, um, Mm -hmm. because these things don't matter, right? I I mean, someone could argue that even knowing who wrote what book or what year was the ex-president elected don't really matter, but there is a sense at least that culturally those are things that you need to know. And so I remember when playing Trivial Pursuit, for example, the, oh, I don't know any of these answers can get a little grating, uh, frustrating. Mm-hmm. While with, with this is, oh, I didn't know how many people like white chocolate. Well, too bad. I tried to guess it was wrong. And the other one is that you are so involved in trying to see, okay, maybe I don't know. My, my, Probably my my answer was completely off because everyone else picked something completely different in value. But so now I'm already focusing on who who am I trusting? Uh, Did they pick a really close number? Am I I just going for the biggest gap because statistically that's the most likely? Or do I think that Nathan has a clear idea of when the first commercial for toothpaste was aired? Um, And so you are involving the betting and that almost supersedes the does someone and does anyone really know any of these answers um sometimes there are some that you you feel like oh i should really know this and you think a little bit harder about it but most of the time is you want to have a lot a big spread of numbers so playing it with more teams or more players is more fun. And I remember liking it quite a bit, even if I usually don't like trivia games anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think that it you're completely right that it does touch on um, not making you feel bad about not knowing things because they're just random little facts. So... Did you... Um, did you prevail? Did you succeed at witzing and wagering? No. <laughs> Not even close. I think Scott won two of the three games we played. And, Solid. And uh, someone else, one of his uncles who like seemed, at first when he sat down to play, he seemed like he didn't want to play at all. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is the best game ever. Like <laughs> It was fun. We had a lot of fun playing it. So, and they, everybody wanted to play it again. They were like, let's play again. Let's play again. So we just played that for a while. Because you mentioned games that are mostly fun. I have to mention this. We, we played a lot of little things, fun things, etc. But we finally cracked open a game that I hadn't played in six years, but we got it from our friends for our 
wedding anniversary this past summer. And it's a game called Agtact in English. It is also published under Argtact and in Italian is Argtech, like technology rather than architect. But the game is exactly the same. So you get um, large inflatable clubs that Nathan can see, obviously. Oh my. They don't show in the podcast, but they are large, very soft. They are very soft, inflatable uh, clubs. And one member of the team, all the clubs, and as a secret picture, and the rest of the team is trying in real time, not because it's time, but because you're playing against the other team and there are no turns, it's just you keep going. They're trying to build a structure out of wooden shapes. But the problem is you cannot say or gesture anything but the prescribed terms and gestures. And so you start bumping your feet or um, shaking your head or moving your heads around you to indicate which piece do you want them to interact with and (laughs) tell them what to do. Place, move to the left, move to the right, uh, shift forward, shift backwards, raise, put on top of another thing. You have to use this specific terminology, which is meant to make you sound, well, like a Neanderthal architect, which also means making you sound really dumb in (laughs) normal human's terms. And so you go around shaking your hips and saying agungu, agungu, or ukungu, ukungu, or things like that. And they mean very specific things and everyone can see the, the grid, but so is you need to translate what you want to say into caveman terms and the other team needs to receive your movements and caveman words and think without saying it of what you want them to do and do it and the other team is doing the same and you're trying to to complete one picture and then that's the only moment where the game stops the other team judges you with either emphatical grunts or disappointed grunts and that determines whether you you score the thing or not and when you get to 10 points you finish and so there is this thing where people from the outside in this case my family barged in checking what was happening because we were (laughs) moving weirdly hitting each other with uh, inflatable clubs because you hit (laughs) once to say yeah you're doing a good job or twice say no you are getting it wrong and shouting because you are frantically doing this and things like that Um, yes it's not a a problem with the mic it's actually weird words that i'm saying Um, and so that was uh, a good start to the new year (laughs) that sounds like a lot of fun uh those clubs look like uh giant inflatable like flintstone clubs yes they're very satisfying. Um, my nephew was definitely too young to play any board game, but really liked going around the house holding one of these. And they are not <laughs> dangerous because they are super soft. Um, okay, I think that's that clears most of my list of played. I have a lot of other small things, but I can talk about them at any other time. So... Do you want to get into our topic of the day? Sure. So, um, as you said in the opening, I was thinking about games that are more than a decade old. Uh, That was our uh, shared understanding of what we were going to talk about. How did you structure that? How did you approach that? 
because that is, is a very general, very large theme. Yeah. So I went through and and looked for I looked through my games because Board Game Geek very conveniently has the year listed next to your games. So I went through and kind of clicked all the things that that I had, which is I'm sure not very surprising to you, uh, a very small number in comparison to my collection. A very small percentage of my collection is over 10 years old. Um, but yeah, so I went through and I looked th- through those and then I sort of narrowed it down. I have 10 with an honorable mention. And I also included ones that are turning 10 this year. Yes, I did something very, very similar, although I noticed that I ended up limiting my both my reflection and the games I, I chose to things that are at least a decade old, including, yes, 2013, but also that stay in that in that area. Um, so I didn't go, well, for example, chess for who am I today as a gamer wouldn't feature in my favorite games, but even if it were, I probably wouldn't have included it, which was a narrower understanding. So basically I thought, well, l- older than a decade, not necessarily as old as possible, but as I said, it was very, very wide. Um, but before we get into the games, I wanted to think of how, again, how the last decade has changed um, change the, how to say it, the change the kind of games. If you think that there is anything that has changed Beside the number, obviously, there are many more games now, but uh, do you see any specific uh, elements that have changed compared to games that were much older? Oh, for sure. I think that older games definitely had to stand on their own feet. I think that the game itself had to be a good game um, for it to be a successful game. And I think that now i've seen a lot more games getting released that seem like they aren't quite there they seem like they are like this game would be good if not for x y or z and i feel like what is drawing people to the games is art and not saying that art shouldn't be a a main focus of a game because I think that there's a very big place for art in board games. And art is all-encompassing of, like, the miniatures, the actual uh, art on the board, the pieces that you're using, the deluxification of, you know, the wooden meeple, you know, whatever it is. I think there's a place for an art designer to have a voice in that final product. However, I feel like with Kickstarter and that genre of crowdfunding, I do feel like the focus has come off of the the game mechanics itself, and it's more about what can we do to make this a deluxified 
version of either a game that already exists or a game that, you know, maybe might not be as tested. And again, not saying that there aren't really solid, excellent games that are that do have all the bells and whistles that are coming out. But I feel like, and I think you mentioned one like last time, like Flamecraft, you said it was very cute, very charming, but it's not something that is really that new or that innovative. And I feel like previously when the focus wasn't on those deluxifications or those modifications of the art or, you know, making something really new, new, new all the time, I feel like the game just had to be better. Yeah, and I think that actually what was happening around a decade ago uh, was important in this development because um, in different ways, but Days of Wonder on the beauty of presentation and on art and companies like Fantasy Flight Games, more on the bombastic miniatures and a lot of pieces and all of that, were both pushing the limits of our expectations. So 10 years ago, Days of Wonders games would be noticeable because they were constantly better than the competition visually. And Fantasy Flight, because they would put more stuff in the box than any of the competition. So um, Days of Wonder was more family-oriented, light hero kind of stuff. Fantasy Flight was a merry trash kingdom. But they were both being noticed for their production. Today, not only they're both in line with the rest, neither of them produces anything that is out of the ordinary visually, but at the same time, they were both raising the bar to the standards that we now take for granted that were actually not 10 years ago. And this was happening 10 years ago and a few years before that. I'm thinking, for example, of Small World that we mentioned uh, again last last uh, episode, which when it came out, the fact that every token had a specific, uh, sorry, every group of token had a specific artwork, that's what, 2009, so a little over a decade, but that period of uh, Days of Wonder pushing the, the design in terms of art. I think it's also the period around 10 to 15 years ago where we start going from, in a way, from the early Euro to the modern Euro, we go from the, the games, the Nizia games, the Hansa Teutonicas of the world, where simplicity is the name of the game, to the first a little more involved Stefan Fell, I think, does his best work, obviously, from my perspective in that period. Uh, but uh, Tashini and Luciani come onto the, the scene. I am not sure because I'm not as much involved in his design, but I think Ewe Rosenberg is shifting from the Bonanza and the Mamma Mia of the war to Agricola and then on to Caverna and all of that. So it's where the the modern Euro um, is is born, but it's still not overly complicated. We are before Mind Clash games, or I think most of them, and we are definitely before the explosion of La Certa games. So, and I think that that's why Actually, the years that go from 2008 to 2013 are probably my absolute favorite in terms of ratio of good designs to designs in total. A lot of games in those years are still among my favorite. Uh, when I think of my favorite games, they are often from that period. For sure. For sure. 
So why don't you kick us off with your favorite, or not favorite, but one that has made your list? Okay, I will try to go uh, so in order. I have picked a few, uh, a few years, the 2008 from uh, 2013, and I will start with 2008, in which, at least apparently from my list, I was still playing much on the experience side of things. But the Slag Galactica game that I have mentioned multiple times is from that year. Uh, Ghost Stories, a cooperative game that is uh, very interesting also for its team, is from that year. And Android, a game that now I don't rank very highly, but that when it came out, it showed me what narrative could do in games. By today's standard, it's quonky. Android is a game in the Fantasy Flight setting of that name. Is their cyberpunk um, word, basically. And uh, it was a game that had you investigate not only a crime in this science fiction setting, but also personal problem of your character. One character was trying to find his missing wife or his estranged wife. Another character was a droid with theological doubts. Another one was a clone that was dealing with uh, her own uh, humanity. And I don't remember the details of the others, but it was this idea of you're trying both to solve a crime, to dig into a conspiracy at the corporate level and solving your own personal thing. But there was no role playing involved. It was not a mixed hybrid thing. It was a straight up board game with effects on cards and personal powers and special ways of scoring points. And I think that was an interesting thing that today we take a little bit for granted. There are a lot of games that do narratives. There are now games that are exclusively narrative. Um, I'm thinking of Tainted Grail and things like that. But for the time, Android was particularly new. And obviously, Battlestar has been a, a pillar of social deduction big games, I think. What do you want to I have some honorable mentions from my okay. things that didn't make the cut. So I'm going to just mention them briefly. Yeah. Uh, the first one is a game we were talking about social deduction. And this one, I really like to play at conventions, even though it's, it's weird. And I haven't played it in a while, obviously with, you know, COVID and everything, because you do have to get, you know, up close with people, but it's two booms in a room. Uh, have you played it? Yeah. Yep, I played it. My friend's Dan's favorite game, I think. <laughs> so um, you are either trying to help the president or um, get the president in the room with uh, an explosive. <laughs> uh, and you are trying to find out information and you can you're either on a blue team or a red team and you color share and, and you can card share and there's all these different things and different roles and it plays with huge numbers of people, but you do need at least like 10 to 16 people. And there are uh, cards that have their own goals. And so it's just chaos and <laughs> a lot of fun if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. And um, I, I, I personally don't love the game. Actually, I don't like the game. But I think it did. You know, but I think it's an important game to mention because it was, as far as I remember, at least 
one of the first that showed that the party atmosphere didn't need to shy away from having rules in general. Each role has a different set of rules. You are trying to do different things. There are specific rules on how you vote and move things around. And I think that that's something that now we see in a lot of things. Things of how even party games recent like code names and things like that are very structured. There are a lot of rules. It's not just one person st- stands up and draws. There are rules, there are s- structures, there are rules that affect what you can do while still being meant to be rowdy and in a, in a party atmosphere. And I think um, Two Rooms and a Boom is one of the first that did that. Yeah. Uh, another one that I have on my honorable mention list is Mao, which is a card game <laughs> by Bruno Catala. Uh, it is a game about cows and flies and not having too many flies or uh, you are embarrassed. But it will always hold a special place in my heart because that's one of the first games I think that that Jackie and I played together with uh, when we were like at his house and not at a convention but I think it's one of the first first games so um, that's one I think I couldn't make this list without mentioning Mao uh, and I think I think it's a game that I like despite it being <laughs> I think not particularly good but um, it's it's such a simple game. You're trying to avoid getting certain cards by trying to get rid of them, basically. The, you play them in a sequence. But the funny team, you are cows trying not to be embarrassed by having flies around you, basically. And the rule says, uh, the rule book says something like, oh, how embarrassing when you get them and you have <laughs> cows that jump over our cows. It's, it's, and it's so quick that even if you are basically uh, beholden to what you have in your hand. It goes away quickly and it's fun. Yes. And then the last one that I have uh, is Guillotine. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played that game, but basically you have a line of cards and these are people like in line for the guillotine and you're trying to collect them. And it's, it's a really light card game, but it's, it's really cute and it's random. And it has, again, that kind of party feel where um, you don't have that much control over what's going to happen, but you have a bunch of options in your hand and and you get to manipulate the line and who's getting what card. So it's I think it's fun. I think it's it's very quick and it's a but that's a much older game. It's from 1998. So Yeah, and in that spirit I think I will mention a game that is today not among my favorites. So it wouldn't make the list and especially it's not from that specific 10 to 15 years ago mm-hmm. that I looked at, but it's Bang. It came out, I think, a little later than Guillotine, but it was a game that we played a ton of when we were young. I mean, most people have probably encountered Bang, but it's a very simple game where you are shooting at people by playing a Bang card from your hand. They hope to have a missed, 
to, to answer you. Then you have a couple of weapons to make your range of attack bigger than the people next to you. And there are secret teams that are, I think, not very well thought of. So it often quickly devolves in the trying to play the cards and being better at drawing the right ones than the other player. Um, <laughs> but I played a lot of that too. So, so what is are... your first big real item that did make the cut? The real, the real list uh, starts with Dominion. 2009, right? 2008. 2008, okay. So, uh, again, a little older, but it's one that I think we've talked about on here before, and it's just one that's... You are playing to build your deck, and but it's limited as far as what you play with, depending on you know what you are what kind of expansions you have and what kind of things you're going for and there's a tension of when to go for the point cards versus not the point cards and so i think there's a lot of fun to be had with that and i think it still has a lot of like we said it has legs to stand on it has a space in people's collections even now i don't think it's i don't i think there are games that have sort of aged out um or there have been better implementations of them and i don't think that 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 is the case with dominion yeah i agree with that i have cooled um off on dominion as evidence evidenced by the fact that when i just mentioned 2008 it didn't even came up in my top rated games uh, but when it came out it was really a, a turning point i think for for not just for our hobby in an abstract sense but for a lot of the games that i ended up enjoying and playing and i played a lot of dominion uh, back when i actually was really naive towards it when we saw it announced i think we were in essen at the time we weren't particularly impressed and it wasn't until he started gathering accolades that we looked into it so the the year after they had a big booth when when it came out they were presenting the game and we looked at it the art was mediocre the the it sounded dry right you are collecting cards to put in your to your deck and then you discard them and then you reshuffle and use them it sounded very not engaging while it turned out to obviously be it was a very big successful game that spawned a bunch of successors and again i think that that's a very good example of how games were bubbling and changing in the 10 to 15 years range uh, from back from now in a way that i don't think we have seen the like since uh, now we have many more games so obviously innovation is coming out but there were so many keen new things in that period and i think dominion is probably the biggest of them all um for me i will jump uh moving up in my year preferences i will jump to the end of the period that we are looking that i'm looking at the uh, 10 to 15 in 2013 2013 has a lot of games that I like, uh, from Cold Baron to Eldritch Horror um, to Battler Second Edition. A lot of these, with the exception of Cold Baron and Bruges, 
are reimagining of things that were before. I want to mention 2013 mostly because I think is the last great year of Feld for me. Um, Rialto, Bora Bora, and Bruges all came out in 2013, and he was working on Aquasphere, uh, which came out a little later. Um, I think that that shows how my love for Feld grew and came into being. Um, and I think that a lot of the designs that I like, and the, even the designers that I like, came to their maturity in that period. So while 2013 probably has none of my absolute favorites, um, although Cold Baron comes close to being there, and Eldritch Horror is a game I have played a ton of, um, I really like that here. Um, I remember 2012, spoiler alert, is probably my absolute favorite year in gaming. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, we will never get close to this again. And then 2013 hit hard again. The one that I want to mention specifically is one that is probably less known, is Seven Ronin, which is a game that I still play regularly. It's a two-player the movement, the placement game. It's basically Seven Samurai by, uh, by Kurosawa or The Magnificent Seven. The idea is one team, one player is playing these seven tokens, which are these strong Ronin, um, strong samurai kind warriors with special abilities. The other player is placing dozens of little tokens that represent ninjas, and you secretly place them on the map, reveal the map, and resolve them. If you break through as the ninjas, uh, you can activate certain location abilities. It's hard to play for both sides. I think it was slightly unbalanced in the original version. A lot of people reported that it was almost impossible for the ninja to win, but you just need to raise the number of the ninjas by like three out of 40 and it becomes a very balanced game. And I really, really like it. It played very often and inflicted on as many of my friends as I can. <laughs> I think I've played that game with you. Yes, I do. From the 2009 to 2010 range. Um, I know one. You know one? It must be there. Yeah, I'm sure. From 2009 to 2010. Uh, I have, so I don't think you're going to think of this, but uh, Quirkle Cubes? No, I didn't. Right. Right. I love Quirkle Cubes because I grew up with Scrabble. And this is like Scrabble, but with colors and shapes. And it's very accessible to a lot of different people. And you're and it always just looks so pretty. And so like because it's rainbow colors and you you just like are making this like grid of of differing shapes and differing colors. So um, I really like that game. Uh, Jaipur is definitely one that I enjoy where you're collecting different goods and selling them. And it's a two player only game. I would highly recommend it. If you like two player games, it's probably one of my favorite two player games, uh, still that I will almost always play if I have just two people. And then another one is uh, Dragonheart, 
which is another two-player game I really enjoy because of how fast it is and uh, you are playing cards from your hand and you're trying to get the most points in your collection pile and each of the cards collects from different piles. So there's lots of uh, tension back and forth as to what you're playing because you're like, oh, do I want to put more cards down here and not really get that good of a pile or do I want to put just you know one card down here and i think it's a lot of fun uh and that's dragon heart and that's a two-player game but yeah. and uh, both... the last one. Oh, oh sorry go ahead <laughs> the last one um which is number two in my top 10 list is macau yes that's the one i knew <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um i've talked about macau i'm sure on here ad nauseum so um if you haven't played it by now i don't think i'm going to convince you to play it so <laughs> it's a great it, feld game probably his best feld game um and it's being re-implemented by amsterdam through queen games uh which i did not back uh so i will be interested to hear how people receive that game yeah, and for those who don't know Macau, it's uh, sad to describe, but the, the, there are a lot of moving parts. You are, there is a map that you're controlling and goods that you're delivering and cards that you're collecting and trying to complete. But the main mechanism of the game is that each round you choose two dice out of six that get rolled that determine what color cubes you're going to get. But the bigger the number of cubes, the later in the game you will get them. And so you're both trying to balance that um, exchange. Do I want a lot of cubes or do I want fewer cubes sooner? But also you cannot store cubes from turn to turn. So you're trying to match, okay, I have four blue cubes coming in four rounds. So I have three rounds to try to get green cubes in the same round, which is an interesting tension. And this leads me to 2009, which probably is um it, it has a lot of uh, games that i played a lot of from the adventure to what you mentioned already jaipur and dragonheart and tobago i think that the reason it doesn't rank higher on my my list of these years of interest to me is that small world and macau are the only two that i consider absolute mainstay of our hobby other games that I that I personally like a lot, World Without End, Middle Earth Quest, are not nearly as mainstream as these. Um, but again, uh, it's 13, 14 years ago now, and Macau is probably my most played Euro of all time, and I have played Small World an embarrassing number of times. Uh, I don't have tracks on that because it was I played a lot of it as soon as it came out, so before I started tracking plays. But I remember that when we brought it back from Essen, it was an absolute success. It is very simple, but it was also very new to people like us who had mostly played Risk when it came to conflict games. The idea of a game that was very open to conflict, very dynamic, very susceptible of uh, atta attacking the leader, but also caring for your points. But I did so with very little to almost no randomness that was mind-blowing. And uh, I think it still holds up very well to this day. Um, 
again, the one that I want to draw people's attention to is Wood Without End, is the smaller brother of the much more famous Pillars of the Earth. Um, I think Wood Without End is much superior, although only if you play it with exactly four players. Uh, 2011, I have two picks from there, uh, from completely different genres of games. So we'll start with Village, uh, by Inca and Marcus Brand. And I love Village. I think it's a great game. Uh, I think even, so with the expansions, I don't think you really need them at all. Um, but I think because I think it's a very solid, great game on its own. And I think it's very, just very interesting because you're, you're taking cubes from the board to take actions, but you need those cubes to pay for certain things. And it's, it's just a very good, solid game. Um, I thought it was just unique and I, I don't think I've ever played another game quite like it. And then um, the other from 2011 is Pictomania, which, again, holds a very special place in my heart because this is the game where I met Anna and Jackie. Anna came up to me at a gaming convention where I had gone by myself, and she was like, do you like drawing? And I was like, I don't not really. (laughs) (laughs) That was basically my response. I was like, not really, but, uh, you know let's let's play a game so uh and the rest is history so yeah i think pictomania again uh, i know i keep repeating myself is this period in which even very traditional things started to get reimagined while today we're probably seeing our hobby being reimagined right uh i'm thinking of lost ruins of iron let's take deck building and worker placement and put them together. But those both come from inside our designer board games hobby. Pictomania, for example, is another one that comes from the side. It's taking Pictionary and making it into a modern, more dynamic, more uh, uh, frantic game. It's basically simultaneous Pictionary where you're not playing in teams. Everyone at the table is drawing something and everyone else is trying to guess what it is inside certain categories. So there is also a certain guidance and there are a couple of clever things that cause um, confusion, basically. And I I like it a lot. Um, Village is also, not only is by the two designers that I find very interesting, this is definitely my favorite games of theirs, Inca Brand and Marcus Brand, um, but also is... (laughs) a game that I think I'm quite decent at. I think I played fine and I have lost it so many times because both Anna and our friend Bob are sharks at this. It's quite (laughs) depressing. We played this, like most of my games of Village by far the most are with Anna and Bob and no one else. And it's depressing because it's usually one of them is 52, the other one is 51 or 50, 48 or 53, and I'm at 27, 30 points. Uh, <laughs> it's frustrating. I know that I usually am uh, not experiencing that, and villages is very hard to me for that. I don't think I'm a generally bad player of village. It's just that the two of them completely cut my 
my avenues there are very good at timing it. But yeah, the, I mentioned it a long time ago when I was talking about this on the on the Dice Tower. It's one of those games, few actually, very few, that makes time a resource that is visible in the game. Most games obviously revolve around time, time of actions, uh, number of rounds, etc. But here you spend the time of your workers and it's not just, well, in a very abstract sense, your worker will die. One of your workers will die when you've spent enough time. And I think that's, that's genius. Um, I really, really like Village. Uh, my next pick is actually not 2015, but interesting enough, despite me not moving deliberately in, uh, in chronological order, is 2010. Um, 2010 has actually fewer games that I like than 2009, 2011, etc. Um, but the ones that are there, two of them are, I think, crucial, not just to my gaming experience, but to where our hobby is today. One is Seven Wonders, once again, taking a mechanic that is not new, drafting, but bringing it in and making it a game, a little bit like what deck building was made into by Dominion. Seven Wonders, I still want to play it today, anytime I have a chance. I am actually one of the few who thinks that Seven Wonders Duel is a very good game, but that Seven Wonders still takes the cake for me. Um, and the other one is Hanabi. Uh, Hanabi is the first in the line of a lot of successful cooperative games that are first cooperative games that at the time were quasi-new because uh, Shadows of a Camelot, I think, in 2008. And second, they rely on limited communication. Hanabi, whenever I, I teach it, is very straightforward. Is You are playing cards in order from one to five in each color. And you're doing this all together. And until you insert the obvious big limitation, which is you don't see your cards and you can only give clues according to certain rules, the game is obviously already sold, basically, until you insert limited information, limited communication. And that has spawned so many games, just one, code names, uh, the crew, all of that revolves around the fact that you can only give limited information in a way prescribed by the game. That is directly traceable to Anabi, I think, at least. I I'm sure there are some examples from before, but none as successful, um, I think. Uh, it was a genius uh, implementation. I still play it a lot with the right people. Some people get super stressed and you, I definitely don't want to inflict it on them. But I think Antoine Bauza did an excellent job with an Abbey small package, um, as well as Seven Wonders. They are both his and they are very good. Honorable mention for me from 2010, Luna. I think it's a very, very good game by Stefan Feld, which again was in his golden years, if you ask me, in that period. Um, watching you and Anna play Hanabi uh, is <laughs> a sight to behold, I will say. Um, I don't remember why. I think I was cooking or something and I couldn't play, but you two like had gotten it to almost like a little bit of a science where you know um 
Anna will give you a clue about one of your hand. And so you'll know, oh, she said specifically that this was this. So that means that this must be this. And so it was, it was just very like interesting to see because I'm not very good at Hanabi. <laughs> um, so to see you guys play it, it's, it's really cool. So um, I think it's a fragile game because you you re you must be very careful, and that's difficult when you've played the game a lot with the same players, not to fall into convention. Meaning, for example, to make a banal example, well, every time Anna gives me uh, cards, she will tell me first the card that she wants me to play first. That would be cheating, right? So right. is taking from the fact that I know that when Anna gives me a clue, it's never a clue that is unplayable. It's never a clue that is limited to very limited information. But these are wide kind of approaches and never, well, obviously, if she gave me this, it means I need to play it in two terms from now because that's what she always does. Um, recently, we have added something that is not very new, but uh, an expansion that we didn't know it existed that uh, inserts a colorless cards that need to be played five through one instead of one to five. It makes it absolute nightmare. It's way past into the masochism realm. I have no idea why we like doing this to ourselves, but we love it. <laughs> uh, my next one is from 1997, actually. Wow. And it is uh, for sale which I know that you're not a big fan of um, okay. economic games or not economic um, bidding games in particular, or Anna isn't at least. Yep. Um, so for sale, your, your first uh, bidding for uh, first pick of a random spread of houses and you're trying to get the best houses to, uh, get cards to play to get the houses to play later to sell for a profit so you're just trying to get the it's it's a very interesting game i think it's really dynamic i think that it plays in an appropriate amount of time um despite there being two very distinct phases to the game and uh well since we're talking about two distinct phases we'll t i'll jump right into my number one game which is biblios um because i can play it with everybody um, and I think it's, I can't speak highly enough about it. What's year is that? Biblios is 2007. Mm -hmm. I, I really like it. So I am totally on board with it. It's one of those that I still play a lot of. And it's another one that is two distinct phases. That's why I, I brought it up and it is bidding. And I do prefer Biblios over, uh, for sale, but for sale has the the ability to expand beyond four players. So that's why I think that they are both deserving of places on this list. Um, and they're they're different enough that I like having both of them in my collection. For me, and I hear I'm reaching the top, but um, apparently either there was something that resonated with me or simply I have a, a bias towards those years. But 2011 is also uh, very, very 
strong, not only for Village, which you already mentioned, but the Castle of Burgundy, another fell that I've played incredibly, incredible amount of. I also had the time for different kinds of games that I don't play as much anymore. Yggdrasil, one of the few cooperative games that I played solo, and it's a very mechanical, very quasi-mathematical kind of co-op. I don't play that uh, as much anymore, but I played a lot of it, uh, of it. And Summoner Wars, it was one of the first 1v1 dual games that I played after Magic the Gathering. Um, it resonated with me as a different, um, very different feeling, but I really like that. There is also the Lord of the Rings, which is still going strong as a cooperative card games. And one that, again, uh, is probably the highest ranked game for me that I don't play often or at all. I haven't played it in years, which is Mage Knight, the board game. Have you ever tried that? Uh, I've seen it, and I have not. <laughs> so I played it last time solo in 2018. And the last time I played it two or more players is 2015. Um, we have, it's a big exception to the, our rule that if a game doesn't get played in one or two years, it leaves the collection. Every time we are considering selling it, we remember how clever of a game it is and we don't end up uh, selling it. I actually made the point I want to play it again this year. It's long. That's the main problem. With two players, it can easily go over three hours. With three, it goes over four. And even oh so, it's big long game it takes a lot of space the rules you need to read them every time unless you play every month or something um but it's very uh, clever it's still very well regarded um and again none of these games is probably my absolute favorite probably recently summer war still comes out often and it was one of my favorite when it came out and lord of the rings is a very solid game but it's, it's a very well-rounded year. There are a lot of games going down the list. Ninjato is a game that I enjoy a lot. Rune Age, Strasbourg, another minor failed. Um, even Tales Against the Herd, the Tortoise, which is a smaller, supposedly children-oriented game that I've played a lot of. Blood Bowl Team Manager. I, I can go on and on. And Pictomania that you already um, mentioned. Um, there is a lot to like in 2011. And again, it's also for me slowly picking up to my my favorite year in games um, of all time. What anything else that you have? I, I, I must say that I'm liking your list a lot. For, for <laughs> the, on, the only one that's left on my uh, on my list here is Bruges, and you've already mentioned it. And I think Bruges is one of Steffenfeld's best best. Uh, projects that he's ever done uh it is a game that i've taught a lot of people and they even though there's a lot of things going on i think it is a lot of fun and as long as you're playing with people who i wouldn't inflict this on you know people who have never played a, a modern ish board game um but it is Definitely a hit with people who, who enjoy board games. Yeah, it's first it has multiple used cards, which I know you like as much as me. It's one yes. mechanism that we really like. And also, I think it, it also shows the, the growing success of Stefan Feld at the time. 
it's the first file that I can think of that has almost unquestionably good presentation. It's Michael Menzel, unique uh, art on each card, or how things have changed from Macau, where every card, woman or man, is represented by a bearded man. Uh, <laughs> and very different. Luna, I actually find it charming, but it's charming in a very minimalist way, um, very simplistic, almost naive style um, images, while Bruges has full art, uh, pieces to place on the board, uh, little coins, color dice. Um, and uh, again, I, I agree, it's, it's definitely one of the most unique and most charming um, felt games. And one that even people that don't like felt in general tend to like because it's a little little quicker, a little less tense. Maybe you won't win the game, but there's, you always feel like you're doing something with your actions. You never feel like you have a wasted turn. You're not using a die to get two workers, like in in, in Macau or in the Castle of Burgundy. Yeah, yeah. um, and we reach my, I have reached at least my, my peak. 2012 is my favorite year in gaming, um, um, edging out 2015, um, which is out of the scope of this of this uh, list. Um, I have four games that I rank at 10, which is unheard of in my my ranking. I am not too shy with my 10s. I'm not one of those that has like five. I, I probably have 10 or 12. But four of those are from uh, 2012, and they are the Sand Second Edition, which to this day I think is the best dungeon crawler that there is. Star Wars The Card Game, the only LCG I ever really got into, although qualifying this as 2012 is a little weird because like all of those games, the core box itself establishes the rules but doesn't make it into the game that I really, really love. But that's where it's... Um, marked Solking, the mayan calendar still one of my favorite heroes luciani and tashini together um the first one of the many successes of both of those designers um a game that makes again time visible um and uh, one of my favorite heroes and finally one that is among my favorite games of all times, it's unique in its jar, it's quick, it's charming, and that's Escape, the Curse of the Temple. <laughs> I thought before playing that that there was no way that a real-time game would appeal to me. Everything that I had played were real-time where you're trying to play cards faster than other players, lapping on the table and things like that. So I was highly skeptical of it. Escape the Curse of the Temple is a cooperative game where you roll dice Yahtzee style, trying to get combination that you need, but you can roll it as many times as you want. Um, there are some faces that lock your dice in, but you have a way to unlock them. Your only limitation is how fast can you roll, decide what you do, and resolve things on the map. Um, it sounds very dumb. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say uh, every time, and sometimes that's even a good thing because you can draw in people that say, okay, let's play this very easy concept. And then once you start adding in 
not just the expansions, but even in the base game, there are modules that are meant to make the game what it really is. It becomes quite complicated, um, frantic, obviously, and in, to me, highly entertaining um, cooperative game. Um, and these are just the top four, but the Resistance Avalon, which is to this day my favorite deduction game, Seasons, that I played a lot, Thunderstone, that now I hear the Thunderstone quest blows the or second the Thunderstone Advance um, out of the water, but still it gave me a lot of fun. Rex, which is a reprint of Dune, so it doesn't really count. Um, Robinson Crusoe, which I have cooled on, but this was for a while always mentioned among the big um, cooperative games. Zombicide, a game that I don't care much for, but that has had an incredible success. Love Letter. I have played a couple of variants of Love Letter. Uh, I mean, not variants, versions of Love Letter over the the, the holidays. Uh, Kemet, the list goes on and on and on. Libertalia, another game that I don't like, but that's had a lot of success. Android Netrunner. I mean, the more I go down this list, I, the more I think it's going to be very hard for any uh, year to top the how important 2012 was. Terra Mystica. That, I mean, it's loads of water deep. <laughs> it's it's um, unbelievable um, how many super hits, cool. Uh, uh, all of this is 2012, and I think the other years should um, just shut up and listen when 2012 is. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's now 11 years ago. That's hard to to swallow. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I get excited speaking about time. So, (laughs) Did that bring us to the end of your list? Yes, it was a messy list because, again, it's a period that goes from 2008 and 2013 that, just to make clear, certainly there is some nostalgia, there is some bias, but... They, those weren't my like my first years in the hobby. They were close to, um, but I started looking at modern um, board games in 2004, 2005. So there were a good five years that I enjoyed. There are games that I like from that period, but it's not like, well, everything was new to me. Therefore, obviously, everything looked amazing, right? I, I felt a shift in, in what was coming out, both on the Ameritrash and on the Euro side. And I think it, it it shows in the legacy of those years. And I haven't even been in in modern gaming for ten years, so they it it does show that it kind of transcends that because my some of my favorite games are in this list that I made. So it it shows that they were oldies but goodies. Indeed, they were. <laughs> So do you want to get into our game review of the day? Yes. Um, So why don't you give us a a general feeling and an overview of of Tiletum uh, by Board and Dice, by uh, Tashini and Luciani, once again, Simone Tashini and Daniele Luciani, uh, which is a 2022 uh, release. So quite new. Yes, shifting to the modern era of Teletum. So Teletum 
was announced at Gen Con as a a just a the letter T. And so it was a big mystery and everyone was like, it's going to be a new T game. And I think it has met that uh, with shining <laughs> brilliance. So uh, Teletum is a game set in the Renaissance where you are uh, taking on the roles of merchants traveling through Europe and you travel to different cities as uh, merchants or architects and you have uh, you are building different things you are drafting dice for these actions and you are trying to balance the value of the dice which is giving you how many uh the color of the dice and the number dictates what goods you're getting and then the space that you're drawing it from dictates how uh what action you're taking and how many you're getting because you're taking uh seven minus the number of whatever the dice faces but those are all printed on the board so it, it makes more sense when you're seeing it it's a, it's not a math problem in your brain but uh it is i feel like it's pretty uh quick playing as far as the individual actions go um and it's it's one of those where you have a lot going on but you are trying to compete with other players for certain things like bonus tiles that are on the board. You're trying to uh, just get a lot of different things going. And it's one of those games where you feel like you don't have enough time to do everything that you want to do. Yeah. And I think you hit, usually we try to talk about after the overview and the general, the, the main hook. And I think that is specifically this very simple concept. Uh, the more resources you get, the less of that action you take and you choose which die you want. So you basically, among the options that are there, choose the action without having to reach for a track or anything like that. And yet, because of the cleanness of that mechanism, it allows to explode with all of the, not only the Euro typical, but specifically the T-series in a way, typical um, Characteristics: There are six actions. There is a, a king track where you are simply trying to be ahead and get more points and turn order. Again, nothing new per se. You are collecting characters that if you collect a set, give you permanent bonus to take other actions. You are collecting contracts, which is where you use the, the bulk of your resources. You have, as you mentioned, a merchant and an architect that you can move on the board and one gives you points, the other one sets you up for the scoring rounds. And then I think the last one is a wild action. So you have a set collection for bonuses, you have a track for turn order and points, you have these two movements and positioning, and you have contracts, and then you have a wild action. So the, the hook is specifically that compared to all of the other two games, act, um, executing the action and getting the resources is simple. What you do with the actions is as complicated and interesting as the others. Um, 
going into theme and components, I like that you mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was the blurb or your summary, but yeah, you are merchants around Europe. And I think <laughs> even more than the other games in the series, this is really, really a thin veneer of what <laughs> the map is kind of geographically oriented, but it could be whatever. It could be a circuit board for all I care. And the contracts are list of numbers of resources, uh, always the same two resources. What is it? Iron and stone or cotton and something else. Well, I, I don't remember. Um, the, the bonus tiles are on the map just because they're on the map. They're also in other places, you, like the track or whatever. Um, and what's the last one? Oh, the characters. Yeah, for some reason, you're kind of building guilds. And so you have predefined large um, sizes of guild palaces. And so you need to choose whether you want to give the big palace to one guild or the small palace to another guild. Uh, the theme is... I actually am surprised that after going to themes that were superficial, but at least very distinctive, uh, Tolkien, the Mayan calendar and the Maya, and the, you can sacrifice to the gods, and there is this spinning wheel that represents the calendar. And Teotihuacan, you're building the pyramid in the center. Um, and what is the other one? Tekenu, the obelisk. And yes. The, the arc and then they go with, let's go back to as generic... Uh, <laughs> merchants as you can and even the city i mean i know where it is but it's not a particle i don't think it's particularly evocative to anyone but whoever lives near it <laughs> so um i was surprised by this choice what do you think of the components though i really like the dice i think that the colors are very nice they stand out and i think that um, the one thing I will say is the the gray and the the gray and the black are a little close, and the blue are all kind of very very close in shade. But I do like how they look overall. Um, every once in a while, I do I I have to look and I'm like, is that wait, is that gray or is that black or is that blue? What am I getting? And so that is a little disappointing but overall i think that the the components are really nice you know i'm a sucker for any wooden components that are special figures so the architect figure is is a little special um the the um pillars they just you know whatever they had left from when they made to Kenu, they just stuck them in this bo uh box but they do work. That's you know you don't really need them to be you know fancy different kinds of pillars. So um, I think that it's nice. I think that they're they're fine. I don't think there's anything that's you know super stand out that I'm like wow that is the coolest. No, I think that they are good. I agree. I think this is the new standard of functional euros. I mean. I much prefer this functional euro than, say, Castle of Burgundy functional euro or the old versions, uh, pre-Grail Games editions of Medici. Um, so I'll take this. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is nothing that is wrong, nothing that you look at it and you go like, why do they make me look at this ugliness? 
So it's it's fine. It's fine, and I'll take many more of those. Um, pace and dark. I know you have mentioned it already, but I think that's very important in this game. How did you find the pace and dark of of, of Tiletum? So I think that it because it's broken up into these four mini goals, um, you have to either have a house or a, your merchant ending in this specific area to then score specific goals. I think because it's broken up that way, it gives you variety as far as what you're going for. There is obviously, you know, long-term goals where you're trying to get different points. Um, but there are also, it's also broken up into these four mini goals. And I think that those create this sort of tension because you know that every, everybody's going for these goals versus other games in this T series. There are, you know, sometimes hidden, hidden goals. I'm thinking of like Tekenu with your goals that you flip over and reveal at the end of the game. Surprise. I'm scoring this or, but I mean, are they really a surprise though? Because people are, you tend to hyper-focus on one specific action or one specific area of the board in those games. But this, it's clear, it's marked on the board. Everyone has to do X, or they're all trying to, you know, get a bunch of characters, or they're trying to, you know, get crests. So there's there's this weird tension that you're all trying to get this one thing. Um, so I think it has, it breaks it up evenly. I think that if you didn't have those, I think that the game would be a little more flat for me. Yeah. Um, I think it's I agree. a small twist, but it, it makes it have a better pace. I agree that beside the, the, the wheel with the action, this is the, the biggest, not innovation because it's not new here, but the biggest element of what makes, I think, Tiletum not only very good, but also different from the other T-games. When I was reading the rules, I was like, okay, but so this breaks it, so it means that you're not doing much overall, right? There are a couple of things that are end scoring, but actually this works very well because it means that there is nothing that you can focus on completely because there are some things that you need to focus on a little bit and then leave behind and then other things that maybe you want to do from the beginning but knowing that point wise they won't bear fruit until the fourth phase of the game so maybe you want to do it anyway because they give you other benefits but in those mini scoring phases which are called fairs in the game to keep with a very very strong team um, <laughs> and so you have to decide, oh, if I start going around with my architect, I will get bonus dice, etc. But I won't really reap the benefits point-wise until the fourth phase of the game. Do I still want to do it early for the other benefits, or do I want to prioritize whatever I'm scoring in the first one? So while there is not a big arc, there is not a big engine building, there is not a big sense of, like in Solkin, the big end will come and I need... My monument, I need my build buildings and I need to be on top of those freaking temple tracks. This is not there, but, but it replaces with I have three actions before the next scoring. Then I have three actions, three, three 
action phases, whatever, before the next scoring and so forth and so on. And I think it does keep both the pace and the arc. Um, sorry, keeps the arc in shape and the pace is made, I think, satisfying by the fact that choosing an action is relatively simple because the actions have some flexibility, but it's a flexibility that is contained. For example, the merchant can do different things, but they are all moving around the map, taking things on the map and placing things on the map. Uh, the character action is you can do different things, but it's either see new characters, get new characters, or replace the characters that you have. So you don't have, you, you technically have a menu of actions for each action, but it's very cohesive, very coherent. So the only big choice that you have to make each time it comes to your turn is what dice I want to take. But you know what the options are, so you usually don't have surprises. Is I will take that die until one of the other two or three players takes that, and then I will take a different one. And it's rare that you can not do what you want because you can pay two gold to change the die. So you usually manage to make the big choices that you want to make happen. It's how you get there that is different every game. Um, do you? F I know both you and I haven't played it uh, a ridiculous amount of times. Um, I played it three times now. But um, what do you think of strategy and replayability? Do you see yourself playing it uh, more? I, I certainly do, for one. I do. I think that the things that they made variable are very nice and give a strong variety to the game. Um, so the end, the, the each round goal, those are variable. The places where you need to be are variable. So you can't say, Oh, I need to, you know, have this specific path laid out. Those, you don't know where it's going to be to have the scoring. Um, I think that that's very interesting. I think changing the the wheel itself, I haven't played with that, but I think changing the order of the wheel could make the game more dynamic, less so than other things, but um, then I think that there is enough variability um, because the, the contracts come out and they can be crests, they can be different things, the different characters come out differently. Um, obviously, whenever you add dice into a game, it adds variability, which they, like you said, have mitigated with the gold purchasing to manipulate it. Um, and uh, not having all the, the different cathedrals available for building, you... Uh, remove one from the game each time. I think even just that little mechanism adds variability because that's another way to score points is by helping build these cathedrals. So I think there's a lot of different small things that maybe if they had just one or two of them wouldn't have that much impact on the game. But I think overall with everything that's included, it provides for completely different games. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I have nothing else to add. You were <laughs> uh, um, so just mentioning in passing the designer and artist. Uh, so, well, mentioning in pa passing the artist, 
Um, the art, as we said, is nice. I don't think anyone will play this game because of the art. No one will notice this and go, oh, I need to play this. Um, it looks complicated. I think it looks a little more complicated than actually is. Um, but the artists I'm, I'm looking, I didn't know uh, by name in either of them. One is, oh mine, it's Ibukniu Umgelter, who has also worked on Tawantinsuyu, Takenu, Tabanuzi. So he gives that um, solid board and dice feeling. The other one, Giorgio De Michele, looks new to, to them, but he has done a lot of things, including Evolution, a game that was very um, successful. And again, they are, I mean, I'm not discussing talent. They are obviously both very talented artists. I am not an expert on, on drawing. But again, I don't think the goal was to, to be noticed for the art. I think it was um, to present a game that is playable and is nice to look at. And that mm-hmm. was I agree with that. When we came, come to the designers, obviously the discussion would be a big one. I think we should do an episode on uh, <laughs> Luciani and Tashini. Uh, together, I can only think of Solkin. I think there is another game that they did together, but I'm blanking on what it is. Uh, but Marco Tashini, Polo? It, sorry? Yeah, Marco Polo and Council 4? Yo, oh yeah, the, the, yeah. Marco Polo was the one that I was thinking of, um, but they—I feel that every game that they do together and for Tashini, even alone, they are immediately noticed because um, Solkin, Voyages of Marco Polo, Council of Four, Teotihuacan, Trismegistus, Takenu, Tabanuzi, Tiletum, regardless of whether I like them or not, uh, some of them I really, really like, others I am much colder on, they seem to be immediately noticed, immediately um, big. Um, do you feel that Tashini is evolving or do you feel that these games tend to be permutation of similar concepts? I think that they are different enough that I enjoy playing them differently. Like I enjoy having them in my, in my collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when he works with different designers, the game feels different enough. I feel like he's good at collaborating with other designers. And I feel like the games are different enough that I enjoy having them in my collection. I I don't know if he's evolving per se. Um, have you played Gollum or Golem? No, I really want to. Um, I am a little worried that um, Golem, which I think is Luciani, right, not Tashini. Correct. But I but I I also have a hard time remembering who's doing what because all of that group of Italian designers does similar in spirit things, even if the mechanics are very different. I am a little wary of Gollum. I feel that some of their games, noticeably not Tiletum, are getting not maybe in Lacerta territory, but still in that too many things that added more to show look how big of a design we can do rather than a cohesive experience. Um, but what did you think about Gollum? 
I actually really like it. Okay. Um, I think it's the scoring mechanism of it is very cool to me. Um, because you're trying to make more golems, you're trying to get these book tracks and you're trying to um, make inventions or artifacts or something with gold. And so you're trying to score on these three different areas for the end game. And it's um, how many things it's two symbols that you multiply apply together um, for each one. And it's, I don't know. I just, it's, it's fun. I like the, the marbles of it that, cause you have to get the pull marbles for um, actions and it's of, it feels very different to me. So I, I don't know it. It is the same team that made Lorenzo, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite games. Also, I don't know. I feel like I have so many favorite games. <laughs> oh, well, to be fair, I agree on that. And I, I know, I don't know. I think only Luciani is part of the Akitoka collective. I am not sure. I know that there is a collective of designers that for a while were designing almost interchangeably. I think um, Tashini is out of that and collaborates with some of them, but that's beside the point. I feel that, as you said before, all of these games are similar in spirit. I think if someone despises that kind, that style of Euro, um, they would not like any of those. If someone is looking for very thematic games or very, very complex machines like 18XX or Lacerda, I don't think they will find that in any of these games. But I think that the proof that they are very different is that specifically, not just myself, but I know a lot of people who like some of them and not others. I know people who cannot stand the canoe, but we really like Marco Polo. I really dislike Trismegistus, but both the canoe and Teotihuacan and Tolkien are among my favorite games. Um, and so I think that that shows how the feeling might be the same, relatively simple ways to do actions that balloon into a very complex resource and engine building game, but they do go to it in very different ways. Dice, for example, are present in this game, are present in uh, the canoe and they're present in the Teotihuacan, but they are using completely different ways. Um, here they are rolled every round like in the canoe, but they are much easier to use. Teotihuacan, you don't roll your dice. Um, Lorenzo, we all roll the same dice. There is a lot of that, um, and I think they, they will keep pushing out things that I'm interested in, although the new one by Luciani and Nunaki looks a much different area control kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we're we're running long on, on time. So um, why don't you introduce us to your final thoughts of uh, on... Oof, delay to I'm blinking on the name now because <laughs> uh, we did get a little off topic there but uh, yeah. uh, Tum I think is a very solid medium weight euro that if people enjoy medium weight euros that it has a space in your collection I think Borden Dice has been putting out 
good medium weight euros for quite some time now, and I think that this is no exception. I think that I am excited to see more from uh, Luciani and and Tashini if they decide to uh, collaborate again in the future. And I'm excited to see more from Board and Dice. So I think that overall it was a hit. I think it will be a hit with people once it is more retail available. Um, I think that it's it's just an overall solid game. Yes, I completely agree. Um, I had great expectations for, for Delatum because uh, time-wise and weight-wise and style-wise, it hits uh, all the prerequisite for me to really like a Euro. Uh, gameplay is under two hours, but over one. Um, again, easy to understand actions that balloon into difficult to make choices um, and designers that I really like. That also meant that the expectations were high and high to harder to clear. And it passed with flying colors. I know already that I like it more than Teotihuacan. Um, it's probably edging, uh, or at least in competition with the Kenu, um, for my second favorite of this series after Tolkien. But Tolkien has been a mainstay of my gaming for so long that it's hard to, to compare. I have played Tolkien. 50 plus times I played all of the others less than 20. So it's it's much different um, word. But this is incredibly uh, good game. I was very happy when Board and Dice offered me a review copy at Essen. Um, and I played it. I plan on keep on playing it um, often because, as you said, the replayability is high. The variety is high. It scales well from 2 to 4. I haven't tried the solo. Um, but it, it, it's such an easy way to make a solid game that, as usual with their uh, with their designs, is why didn't someone think of that earlier? Right? This oh, the more resources you take, the weaker your action is. As simple as that, and yet it works so charmingly well. And I'm really excited to play Tilatum again. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Um, so if you are hearing this, we would really appreciate you liking, commenting, subscribing. Uh, I have not yet checked the poll to see if people have answered it. So, uh, we will get that down for next time and I will have a poll on this one. So look out for that wherever you're listening to this. Uh, thank you for, for coming. And thank you for listening. I am Jackie. And I'm Nathan. Bye-bye.